So I was talking to Alan and asking her, you know, what, what should I preach on today on this Sunday of Mother's Day? And she replied, well, I think the next section of Luke would be a really good Mother's Day sermon. And I was like, well, probably you're right. And so this text we're looking at today is Jesus' famous teaching on anxiety. And that might resonate with you today. And, um, but even more than anxiety, it's Jesus' special text on assurances that you and I have to deal with our anxieties. Beautiful text. So open your Bibles to Luke chapter 12, verse 22. 12, 22. And he said to his disciples... Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat, nor about your body, what you will put on. For life is more than food and the body more than clothing. Consider the ravens. They neither sow nor reap. They have neither storehouse nor barn. And yet God feeds them. Of how much more value are you than the birds? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? If then you're not able to do as small a thing as that, why are you anxious about the rest? Consider the lilies, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God... So clothes the grass which is alive in the field today and tomorrow's thrown into the oven, how much more will he clothe you, O you of little faith? And do not seek what you are to eat and what you are to drink, nor be worried, for all the nations of the world seek after these things, and your Father knows that you need them. Instead, seek his kingdom, and these things will be added to you. Fear not, little flock, for it is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions and give to the needy. Provide yourselves with money bags that do not grow old, with a treasure in the heavens that do not fail, where no thief approaches and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also and the grass withers, and the flowers fade, and this very good word endures forever. Thanks be to God. And so you and I know that anxiety is a, is a huge issue, huge issue in our culture. And not just in the culture in general, but it's an issue for us. We deal with it, we face it, we have anxiety. And in particular, we can think of mothers and the unique anxiety that motherhood can prompt Last October, um, even as the pandemic had receded, one survey reported that two-thirds of mothers were feeling greater levels of anxiety. A book Alan and I have liked, 2011, Elise Fitzpatrick and her daughter, Jessica Thompson, wrote a book entitled Give Them Grace. It's a book on parenting, and it warned parents of like nurturing their children in such a way that it all depended on them, that the weight of the world was on their shoulders and that, that worry that 
resulted. And they offer a result of this mindset, citing a focus on the family survey that found that the most frequent comment from mothers is that they felt like failures. And some counselors even speak of a specific type of anxiety called mom anxiety. The unique anxiety that's triggered by the responsibilities of raising children, arising from that complex cocktail of genetics and hormones and societal influences that drive the maternal instinct to care for and protect children. There's a unique variety of anxiety marked by such questions as, am I a good mom? Should I stay home? Should I go to work? Am I too distracted? Should I use daycare? Will we have enough money? Is my child healthy enough, active enough, eating enough? Will my child be safe at school? Am I giving my child enough attention? Am I giving my child too much attention? Are other moms doing a better job than me? Am I parenting well? Is my child getting coddled? Am I too hard on my child? Should I have another baby? A host of questions that flood one's mind. Manifests in various ways and emotions like the persistent worry for your child's well-being, constant questioning of whether you're a good mom, chronic sleep issues, issues with appetite, eating, feeling judged or mom-shamed, persistent feelings of guilt and sadness, fear, regularly consulting Dr. Google, avoiding social situations, consistently feeling not good enough, regularly feeling overwhelmed. A host of things that can flood a mother's mind. Well, the unique description of mom anxiety, uh, that regarding tending to and caring for your children, makes me think of what Old Testament professor Richard Pratt said when he's commenting on Genesis 3.16. And you remember that's God's unique curse to Eve following the fall. And he looks at Eve and he says, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. And our normal way of viewing that text is that that just speaks of the pains of physical childbirth, but really the text amplifies that sense of pain to encompass all the unique pain a mother goes through as she shepherds and nurtures and disciples her children throughout their lives. He visited one lady in the hospital after a long, hard delivery, and the lady through, you know, exhausted, looked at Dr. Pratt and said, well, I guess I've done my part filling the earth. And he looked at her and replied to her, no, you've only just begun. Motherhood encompasses, as you know, the whole life. So before all this, Jesus is teaching on anxiety for all of us and maybe in a special way for mothers is such a reorientation and, and just a relief. It's kind of like what another professor that I appreciate a lot said, this text like breathes the atmosphere of a different world. It's a whole different approach to regard yourself and to regard your responsibilities and to regard your future. And so Luke places Jesus' teaching on anxiety right after his warning about covetousness and the parable of the rich fool. I mean, it's, it's the same continuous teaching in the way Luke records it. So one commentator states the reason for this arrangement as greed can never get enough, but worry is afraid it may not have enough. That sense that we're just not gonna have enough, whatever that be. 
Another states it more positively and it says why this arrangement. He says the best way to combat covetousness and the feverish clinging to worldly goods is the development of true faith in the fatherly care of God. It's a beautiful statement. How do I deal with it? To what degree am I depending on the fatherly care of God? And that's where our passage goes. So that's what Jesus emphasizes. It's assurances to deal with your anxiety today, whatever they be. And though he specifically deals with anxiety related to money and possessions, his teaching covers all the areas of our lives that occasion anxiety. So just think for a moment. So my favorite treatment of this passage is one that a number of you really like in our church is David Pallison's article entitled, uh, Don't Worry. And in it, he counsels asking two questions of this text. One is, what do you worry about? We all have our certain mix, um, our unique personality in the way we interact with the world. So what, what are the things you worry about? And then the second question is, why do you worry? Why do you worry? We need to personalize it. We tend to meander um, in a general feeling of being unsettled and fretful and stewing and troubled and agitated unless we're able to clarify things. It's like that counseling practice, name it to claim it. You've got to be able to clarify what's going on in your heart. So what are those things and why? And normally what we do with anxiety is we look at the what and we blame our anxiety on that But Jesus doesn't really let us do that. He always goes deeper throughout scripture and he says it's not exactly the what. That's just the occasion for your worry. The issue is the why. It's you. What are you dealing with? How are you interacting with it? So in verse 22, Jesus turns again to speak to his disciples. You remember in verse 13, a guy had interrupted Jesus from the crowd and took Jesus in a different direction, but now Jesus, on the basis of that, after giving that parable, goes back to his disciples and speaks to them. And so it teaches us that the comfort Jesus gives regarding our anxiety is the comfort that only disciples of Jesus can count on. He says, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat, nor about your body, what you will put on. And so he's dealing with food and clothing. Uh, Big motives for anxiety, really it includes the basic necessities of life. And we have to remember that they are subsistence farmers, one crop to the next. The basic necessities of life is what's on their mind. So Jesus says, do not be anxious. And it's part of that common command in Scripture, which is really the most common command in Scripture, do not fear or do not be afraid. And it's, it's God's recognition that his people struggle to live well in an unwell, unstable world. It's just not easy. And we all have this problem. Furthermore, even further than that, it's God's sympathy that it, it's tough to live in a fallen world. And there are many good reasons to have worry. And so at the same time, he's wanting to recognize that and then say that I'm going to reorient and relieve you in the face of your worries. So the whys of anxiety in, this, in Jesus' teaching uh, is here a form of covetousness. Um, 
It's not always the case. You know, in 2 Corinthians eleven twenty-eight, the same word is used as Paul says, I daily um, feel the pressure of the anxiety for the churches. It's like this deep care and concern for the well-being of the saints. But here, this form of anxiety is sinful worry. Pallison calls it anxious greed. It's, it's not the same greed as the rich man. In the parable, his greed was a satisfied greed, like I've got enough, I'm gonna kick back and just do what I want. Kind of a satisfied, I'm all about me sort of mentality. Here it's an anxious greed, the greed that says, what if I don't have enough? What if when I need something, it's just not there? Like I'm, I'm, I'm just gonna lack. I'm gonna lack what's needed as I look to the future. And we can all relate to this. I mean, it's a, it's a real present temptation for us. Um, it's also an anxiety, according to our text, that's related to a lack of faith. Jesus is gonna look at him and say, oh, you have little faith. It's not that they have no faith. These are disciples, but they have little faith. And our anxieties expose the littleness of our faith. It's losing sight of God because what we want is all we see. And it's also a desire to control things. So he's going to say, which of you by worrying can add a single hour to his span of life? And the sense there is, if you can't do the small thing, why worry about the rest? Anxiety is a matter of dealing with uncertainty. Pallison would say, worriers act as if they might be able to control the uncontrollable, and we want to. So we can see ourselves in all of these, and these are the whys of the anxiety in this passage. So then what are the reasons does Jesus give to his disciples that we can face our anxieties and overcome our anxieties? So what Pallison says, I love this little phrase, though you've got plenty of good reasons to worry, you've got plenty of better reasons not to worry. And that's both honest and also hopeful for a mother, for a family, for any of us as we deal with the uncertainties of life. So seven reasons to overcome your anxiety in our text. First, Jesus says, know that there's way more to you than what you have or you don't have. Out of verse 23. So verse 23 says this, for life is more than food and the body more than clothing. There's way more to you than what you have or don't have. They don't make or break you. So what does make or break you in Jesus' sermon is this, who do you fear and what do you do with Jesus? Those are the things that really matter that make or break you. So you go through your worry list and in your worry list you say, my life is more than X. Whether I get it, it's great. If I don't get it, it's really okay. My life is more than that, more significant than that. Bigger things than the basic necessities of life constitute the significance of your life. It's really not your success or your performance or your finances or your looks or your friends, even the well-adjustedness or achievements of your children. It's that God is your God and Christ is your savior. Your life is more than what you have or don't have. 
Well, the second builds on that in verse 24. Verse 24, the second is, know that you are of immeasurable value to God. And so do you regard yourself in that way today? That you're of immeasurable value to God? Mothers, do you regard yourself as immensely valuable to God? So verse 24, Jesus is preaching uh, outside and evidently there's some crows that are making a racket. And they're just these common, clever, annoying scavenger crows. They don't have the ability to sow or reap. They don't have storehouses or barns. Yet Jesus says, look, God feeds them. They, They work for food in the way they're able to work for food. And yet it's God who provides for them. And then Jesus offers this wonderful lesser to greater argument. He says, if he'll do that for a creature of such little value as these common annoying crows, how much more will he do that for you who are of such great value to him? Do you know you have that much value to him, Jesus is saying. And so the question is, how much are you worth to God? And the gospel says that you are worth, that your worth is set by the cost that God paid to redeem you. It's set by the blood of his beloved son and nothing less than that. It's the most costly thing that God used to purchase you. So if God values you to that extent, surely he's going to care for you. Third, to counter our anxieties with God's assurances, The third is, know that it's futile to worry. Verse 25 and 26. If you you can't add a cubit, that's the distance from your elbow to your finger, if you can't add a cubit, um, 18 inches to the span of your life, and that's a view of your life as a long walk or journey, so a span is a segment of it. If you can't add such a small amount to the course of your life, then why take on yourself all the anxiety over the bigger, greater things? It's another lesser to greater argument. If we're not in control of the small things, then why do we think we can control the greater things? Now, like Keller's statement, he says, worry is not believing God will get it right, while bitterness is believing God got it wrong. So bitterness looks in the past tense, worry looks in the future tense, it's like God's not gonna get it right. I like Paul Miller's statement on prayer, he goes, most of our prayers are just worrying and wandering. And so we make it clear what we are needing God to care for. And then he's had that wonderful statement, at some point in my life he said, I found that I did my best parenting, not talking to my children, but praying for my children. Because I can't control it. So the idea is that God's not going to get it right, so I have to take it on, but worrying accomplishes nothing. It's caving into an illusion of control. And so underneath this, Jesus is telling us, will you not trust in the God who is in control and his nature and his character and his covenant promises towards you? So fourth, know that you're heading for glory. And so the question is, do you know you're heading for glory today? 
That's verses 27 and 28. And what Jesus says there is, it's another lesser to greater argument. It's similar to the crows, but it goes even further than that. Jesus says, if God clothes the lilies of the field with such splendor, and those lilies are just a general name for wildflowers that grow along the road, they're not tended, and yet they brighten up the landscape, maybe like the buttercups on uh, the Natchez Trace, certain times of year, the whole field is yellow. If God clothes them so magnificently so that all Solomon's glory of legendary opulence and splendor pales in comparison to them, and if God clothes the grass of the field, which is beautiful, but it's also transitory and temporal such that when it's dried, it's used as fuel for an oven, if he does that, then how much more will he clothe you, O you of little faith? And the thought is not just that he's gonna provide for you like he provides for the crows, but it's even more that God's gonna clothe you with glory one day. You're gonna outdazzle Solomon in his splendor one day. You'll shine with radiant glory, so don't worry about your health, for God's going to raise you to a glorified body. Don't worry about your money, for God's going to give you the whole earth as your inheritance. Don't worry about your future, it's brighter than you can imagine. All of that is in the gospel, that Jesus came to unlock the kingdom for us. Fifth, you're free, therefore, from the treadmill of the world, verses 29 through 30. And so Jesus says there, the whole unbelieving world rushes around, races frantically around in this feverish loading up of the cares of the world onto their shoulders and hustling to get what they need and want as the end all be, in, be all in life. But we don't have to do that. We don't have to fit the perfect picture of the advertisers who paint this is what makes us satisfied and successful. We can take a deep breath and see things in a different light. And so why? Well, the world lives like there's no God. But you know God not only as your creator, but right here Jesus chooses to identify God the creator as your father in the Lord Jesus Christ. The creator of the universe and sustainer of the universe, you know as father. Your father knows you have legitimate needs. He's in charge of the universe and he lovingly cares for you. He's proved that in his son who he gave for your behalf. His son who endured any cost necessary in order that the intimate, loving relationship he enjoys with his father would also be the relationship you enjoy with his father, such that you would be adoptive sons and daughters of God. You can step off the treadmill knowing a God like that. Sixth, know your father's ordinary way of providing for you, verse 31. And this is really the principal reason given in Jesus' sermon here. It orients, orients everything about our priorities. 
Jesus says, instead, seek his kingdom and these things will be added to you in whatever you're doing. You're seeking Jesus' kingdom and trusting God to add the rest. We seek God's kingdom in all the ways God has called us in the world, be it as a mother or a father or a child or a worker, a student, a citizen, a church member. And in those callings, we're after God's glory, we're after the good of others, we're working to be instruments of grace to speak gospel to others. That's our agenda that orients our our whole framework on life and our responsibilities. And as we take care of our responsibilities, we know that God is going to provide our basic necessities for life. It's just freeing to know that we go after what God's charged us to do and God promises to take care of our needs. And that frames our whole life, his ordinary way of providing for us. And then finally, seventh, know the best place to do your investing. Verses 32 and 34, the best place to do your investing. And so Jesus makes this wonderful statement. He says, fear not, little flock, for it is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. And so, I mean, that's one of those phrases that we put on your mirror in the morning. It's the only place in scripture where little flock is used. It's a picture of a flock that's so small, so tiny, that the shepherd knows his sheep by name and knows their idiosyncrasies and uniqueness of each of his sheep, what they personally particularly need. That's the image there. And so your father knows you even more than that, more intimately than that. And and Jesus says it's his good pleasure to give you the kingdom. It's not something he begrudgingly or reluctantly or passively does. It delights him. It gives him great joy to give you the kingdom. And so mothers and fathers, you can relate this to the solid covenant promises throughout scripture for our children like the one that I love to quote on baptism Sundays, and so I'll do it now, I will give them one heart and one way that they may fear me forever for their own good and the good of their children after them. I will rejoice in doing them good, God's covenant promises. It's the way God works in this uncertain world, the way he accomplishes his revealed will for our children. Know the best place to do your investing. So if that's the case, we don't fixate on what we can get, rather we focus on what we can give. And whatever it is in life, it's a life of giving, of generosity towards others, acts of kindness, caring, speaking gospel words, the blood and righteousness of Christ. These are really, in Jesus's words, deposits and investments to put in the only bank where our riches can be truly safe and can actually grow in interest. As we live like that, our minds and our hearts get more captivated by God's glory and his grace. For Jesus closes it down by saying, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The more we're giving on behalf of others, the more our hearts get fixated on our treasure in heaven. So seven reasons Jesus gives for mothers and all of us to have great assurances to counter our present struggle with anxiety and to cultivate faith in our heavenly father amid all the perplexities of this world. So Jesus' charge to us is that we deepen that stability and sense of confidence 
and all God's grace and blessing to us today in Christ, in the cross of Christ, in his resurrection, in his keeping mercies for you. And may that be the case. Amen. Let's pray. Our great God, thank you for the fact that you would pastor us through a text like this that meets us in the midst of the difficulties of life and grants us solid anchors that we would be assured in your presence with your keeping and fatherly care over us in Christ. And may you uphold and encourage your people today with that realization and certainty. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Please stand.